Hello and welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my brother, Jeremy Sartori. It's a Brother, Brother podcast, and Jeremy and I have just woken up from binge-watching Ken Burns' country music series. Jerry, what do you think? I thought it was <laughs> amazing. I mean, it's, uh, it's Ken Burns in general can make me watch, you know, a 16-part, or 16-hour, sorry, documentary on, like, paint. Um, the guy just goes into, like, so much detail. Um, it's I've never really not enjoyed anything he's done, and I don't really, like, you know jazz music for instance um but i thought the jazz one was great um the vietnam was amazing and you know i, I happen to really like country music or at least you know um kind of the roots of country music and folk music and uh so this one was not um something that i knew i was gonna like but also just you know masterfully done by burns as usual um and didn't feel long and uh you know really like something that I would recommend anybody who yeah, I could, wants I could to know more about it. American history and music. I could have watched it longer and uh, you know, I, I, I was never I was never unsatisfied. It was it doesn't really drag. There's so much there. It's you know, it's so, such a great mirror for American history and, you know, all sorts of, you know, different things. I mean you know, technological innovation, you know, musical yep. styles, social mores, mm-hmm. everything that you could possibly fit in. But it is, uh, you know, very much the story of country music, and which means it's very much the story of of the South and and you know, um, Midwest and and uh, it just it, I don't know. It, yeah, America's West. I mean, it, it's it's funny. It's one of the rare ones that I think kind of echo what you just said that I there's a couple episodes I wish were longer you know because like they wish they fit in more because it was it was really fascinating um and interesting and and you know some things that like you know we were kind of talking prior and we've been talking about this uh series as as we've sort of been watching it on and off but you know a lot of things I certainly didn't know I mean I'm not a country music aficionado by any means I I, I am now what I like yeah no I feel like I am now as well but I think just to go back to the very roots and beginning, um, you know, I had no idea. I, I knew that country music certainly had some roots in, in you know, kind of European folk music and, and you know, obviously sort of slave um, music and, and, and what became blues and things like that nature. But, you know, I had no idea the, the banjo was imported from Africa with, with you know, Af- African slaves. And, you know, it was an instrument that, you know, white folk picked up from from uh you know slaves and and, and from people singing and, and playing out in the fields yeah i mean even even you know sort of the technological piece that you know going way back to the 20s and 30s where you know if people wanted music they bought sheet music and somebody played it on the piano at home right uh, this is the sort of evolution of recorded music um the very beginnings of it and, and the you know the first pop star uh jimmy rogers and they start basically there with jimmy rogers the uh the yodeling cowboy um who you know obviously uh figured most prominently in my life uh by being the soundtrack to potholes in my lawn by de la soul Um, (laughs) exactly um but it was you know i think one of the things that i i was really pleased with in this is um you know i mean the the history of country music and the bedrock of country music is this sort of uh you know much the same as the blues is this sort of you know b- dispelling or or you know disseminating of misery 
and mm-hmm. they took all these stories of hardship and misery and kind of made you happy to listen to them. And so that's a great Ken Burns trick right there. Um, but it really is. It's a, you know, I mean, if you talk about the sort of legends of country music, you're talking about a bunch of short lifespans piled on top of each other. Um, yeah, it, it's severe poverty, um, you know, hard hardship as far as, you know, uh, the life that these people had. I think it's kind of too, you know, you and I growing up on the East Coast um, pretty much our whole lives or our whole lives. I know you had some West Coast uh, um, time as well, but but basically coast, I'll say. And, uh, you know, it's also, I think, just a, a part of the country and a, um, a history that I'm, I'm just... I find fascinating, you know, um, just the, the Southeast, uh, you know, Appalachia. Yeah. Appalachia, the, you know, sort of from the family bonds and the, you know, kind of, uh, the music, music that brought those folks together. I mean, the idea that, um, you know, as you mentioned, like sheet music on a piano with string instruments really becoming the primary, you know, focus for American folk music and, and, Burns is, you know, you, you said blues and, and um, I would add jazz as well as something that's like very American, very, um, you know, kind of birthed out of out of misery and experimentation. But it's, it's usually taking like an, another, a lot of different forms of music and kind of making it, you know, I guess, lack of a better word, American, right? So, but one of the pieces that I, I found really fascinating too early on was just makes total sense the idea that you can travel with these instruments and yeah. you can play them anywhere you can play them on a field you can ride on a horse with a guitar or a fiddle or you know it's, it's easy to transport and they're loud you don't need microphones yet you know yeah well i think the you know one of the early i mean you had the jimmy rogers story and his sort of rise to prominence and and that was you know funny because he was the f- sort of first rock star and um you know it, I, I guess as old as the pop star is uh, so is the behind the music type story of, of a guy who gets rich, spends all his money and drinks himself to death right off the bat. Um, the one of the more interesting stories is episode it to be a theme in, throughout. <laughs> yeah, it is. A lot of um, but, the, you know, the the Carter family story, which, you know, comes up in episode two, I believe, um, is a very interesting one. And one of the you know, I mean, when you think about you know, sort of great leaps forward, it's hard to imagine that, you know, doing something as, as you know, retail and, and local as, as what A.P. Carter did um, by going from holler to holler and sort of, you know, recording or taking uh, each individual, you know, these, these uh, you know, this music was kind of an oral tradition, an oral storytelling mm-hmm. tradition. And he goes from, you know... Uh, holler to holler, literally sides of mountains to sides of mountains, um, with a, you know, with a musician friend, um, African-American musician friend, though, um, which made it even more interesting, but, uh, basically compiling, uh, these songs and then making them, taking them back to his family, the Carter family, and and you know making them and recording them, it's uh, I guess it you know it was a very um, it was a very appealing form of plagiarism, but uh, you know you you I don't think a lot of these songs see the light of day if if it isn't for somebody as enterprising uh, as that and and you know these songs then die a, a you know a death that they shouldn't if he's not around. Yeah, no, the Carter family 
you know, I, I realize I know I've known of their importance to this genre and to music, but I didn't realize yet, to your point, like how essential they were to us, any of us hearing this music at all. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and and you know the again, you know, sort of a nod to the documentary, which I hope everybody watches. Um, you know, they were it was not a harmonious uh, existence. There was uh, a lot of tumult and. And uh, difficulty, you know, they they were their own soap opera, um, as well as their own traveling show. Yeah, there was a. Um, I think there's there's a another theme. Um, there's a lot of heartbreak and a lot of um, broken marriages and things like that. And I think you know, growing up for me, country seemed kind of pure, you know, in a weird way, like um, sort of. A, well, that's always the veneer, yeah. Right, vanilla. Yeah, exactly. That it's this kind of like happy, smiling American show. values. You know, blah blah yep. blah. But yeah, and, and I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just gonna say it's you know I mean that's the kind of thing like growing up in you know Virginia, you know before the age of cable, um, you know on Saturday nights, you know before the ABC schedule kicked in, you know when that. Eight, six to eight block where you know you had um you know syndicated shows we would get like we would get the statler brothers hour and all these shows that they had you know pieces of that you know i i was always trying to tell people that you know this was like what we i mean it then became hee-haw which was a, a more national show which we'll get to later but um you know they you know we had these you know small regional like entertainment, like country entertainment hours, and they were very, very. It's all very clean cut, all very, um, you know, Pokey. Christian, you know, and you know, it's very, you know, it's born of the church, and it very much adhered to the church. Yeah, and I mean, I think that was, I mean, the Grand Ole Opry, especially, which they go into length about as well, and is kind of throughout the entire series based on its uh, longevity and importance, you know, kind of seemed to be the temple of that, you know, to the point where if you did act out or if you were, um, you know, quote unquote, like inappropriate, that you were booted, you know? Yeah. Well, there's, yeah, it's stories upon stories of people being banned for life who then later come back and and have some form of redemption. Um, Yeah, it really is. It's very like church or like, you know, or Christian, like where you sort of are forgiven for your cast out and then, you know, reclaimed. I thought the other interesting thing in the early one was the actual records and the genres of immigrant records that were mm-hmm. prevalent at the time. Like, I know, you know, there was sort of obviously like a lot of booming. This was the, you know, turn of the century for the United States and booming and growing. And you had, um, you know, large populations of Chinese and Italians and Irish and, you know, all of these populations kind of flowing in. And, and again, smart business people kind of took advantage of that and would have, you know, Records in Chinese or records in Italian or polka records, or whatever. Or, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, and and then the the hillbilly records, and that's what the country you know kind of record, and they changed it. I think to did they change it to country? I can't remember. I feel like they they uh, changed it to country and western eventually because hillbilly was seen as a derogatory term. Um, right, it was, it was kind of like a low. Yeah, it's also something term. that in, intermittently gets embraced. You know. Yeah. Um, it's. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, even to modern day when, you know, Dolly Parton refers to herself as backwoods Barbie, um, just a hillbilly girl, you know, it's, 
um, it's it's something again that's that's both an insult and a compliment and something to embrace and reject. It's it's a very there's a lot of that um, you know sort of there's a lot of dichotomy in, in country in country music. There's a lot of you know much like you know with uh, blues and R and B and soul. You know you got to sin to be saved. Um, and what you do on Saturday night, you know, or what is it? The you know, there's some very well worn, um, you know, sort of aphorisms that are, uh, you know, stated about, you know, sitting on Saturday night so you can to be saved on Sunday morning. Yeah. And you know, like, uh, but the, you know, so it, and the other thing was the volume. I couldn't, you know, you were talking about the, the sort of different ethnic um, variations of, of music and who they were marketed to. Um, you know, the Carter family, they, they mentioned at some point, and Jimmy Rogers as well, these guys were selling 100,000 records. That's huge. Oh, yeah, no, it was wild, yeah. And I mean, it, it, it you know, it, it stands, I think, today, when you look at that genre of music, it's just wildly popular, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and it must just cross over more than you think it does, because people really like I mean you know we're, we're not necessarily fans of today's modern country sound but um but you know it, it just it's it's huge I mean it's a huge seller and yeah. uh, as big as any pop star and, and I, I found the I mean what were who were the, some of the talking heads that you found like most interesting and, and like there, throw there out were... a couple key points that you thought I, I feel like it was 16 hours ago when I went through these episodes uh, there's a bunch I mean a lot of the country music stalwarts people like Tom T. Hall was great um, mm-hmm. you know uh, Rodney Crowell I think was you know a very uh, you know soothing presence Vince Gill somebody who I'd never really given any time yeah, to at I almost all. didn't recognize him either <laughs> no and I you know and, and you know I I'm very rarely like shocked by something that I you know that I don't know about you know 70s music but I did not realize that Vince Gill had uh was a late era lead singer of Pure Prairie League. Okay, um, yeah, right. No, I, yeah, I didn't know that either until yeah. this. But, you know, I think I mean, the, good. Dwight Yoakam, of course. Um you know, Marty Stewart. It was Dolly. Uh, yeah, and the other thing that I thought was really amazing is guys that I've seen forever, like a Marty Stewart, and uh, you know, obviously has a, a quite distinct look, but seems to you know played with every single living human I believe, country artist. I, I, I believe that I believe that look is called Rock Me Amadeus. <laughs> yeah, he's he's definitely managed the uh, Amadeus uh, look for many years, and um, but um, the fact that like. That guy started when he was like twelve, you yeah. know, like Vince Gill, and, same. Yeah, these aren't, and you know, th- these are backwoods, poor people. I, I shouldn't say backwoods, I don't, I guess, but like these are not, you know, these are not kids going to boarding school and or music school, you know, and, and becoming virtuosos. It's it's like very much self-taught or handed down, and then. Um, you know, some of them are just so talented that, like, at 12 years old, it's like, get on the tour bus. Well, they, they have, you know, intermittently throughout, they, you know, they have footage of people like Ricky Skaggs playing at six years old on stage or, or yeah. um, you know, I mean, which is amazing. Uh, Marty Stewart, another virtuoso. Vince Gill, another virtuoso. Um, you know, Glenn Campbell, if he were still with us, would have been part of this as well. 
these guys that are just, you know, unbelievable players, even, you know, Buck Owens and people like that, that, you know, had a different persona when I was growing up because, you know, he was the guy on Hee Haw. But, you know, when you think about it, he and Roy Clark were just remarkable musicians. And it's it's kind of hard to separate that out. This gives you, you know, some basis for that you know, opinion or, or gives you sort of a background of, of who these people are. You know, they're, they're playing to a type to a certain degree. They're playing up, you know, a look and a, and a, um, sensibility, but you know, in the heart of it, they're incredible players. Yeah. And I think that's something that's like often missed in this type of music because it's very story driven and, and, you know, song driven. It's, it's, there's not a lot of I mean, I guess in, like, bluegrass and stuff, there's a lot of soloing and, and things like that, but it, it's not quite, you know, it's not excessive to the point where it's, you know, five hours of soloing. Yeah, you don't get um, yes records out of this. No, yeah. <laughs> you don't get the Grateful Dead, uh, you know, intermission, space and drums-esque uh, country break. But, like, um, but yeah, I mean, like, I think that's something that's almost underlooked is, like, you had to be really good <laughs> to, yeah. to kind of be a part of this group. I mean, these were professional musicians that, that didn't fuck around. I mean, in the sense of, yes, they all fucked around on their wives and, and drank a lot, but but they definitely did not until fuck they, around until, when it came and, to playing. Until late career, uh, AA and, um, you know, and uh, Um the one, uh, I was going to say, know, let's... Before we go on, let's hear something from the early, early side of this, and uh, take a break, and then like maybe talk about kind of some of the turning points that that I think because I, I feel like the doc was it's so expansive we could go on forever. For days. But a couple like really key points in this this uh, evolution, you know, Nashville, uh, this sort of corporate corporate. Uh, takeover of, of like the recording side and you know Hank things like that so you want to take a quick break and yeah uh, let's do it I was standing by the window on one cold and cloudy day and I saw the first come rolling for to carry my mother away oh can the circle Unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by. There's a bitter home awaiting in the sky, Lord, in the sky. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today it's just Wynn and I, and uh, we're fondly uh, recounting our experience with Ken Burns's most recent. PBS doc um, on country music and, uh, you know, kind of talking about the early years initially where, you know, it, it was sort of a history lesson both in kind of American music and, and uh, the country really in, in a lot of ways. And uh, one of the episodes that really stood out to me, and, and there's a lot of good stuff here, I, I haven't, there, aren't, there isn't a bad one, but one of the ones that is the Hillbilly Shakespeare episode that really centers around Hank Williams and his rise and how he, I think when you mentioned, became kind of a tidal wave for this music really hitting, just becoming huge, and yeah. how big he was, and how um, damaged he was, <laughs> and damaged yeah, he did those around him. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy, died at 27, you know, like, um, and was it his his mom you know i mean so the where was hank sorry and i 
forgive me for there's so many things to this, but like, where was he from again? Hank Williams was from Mississippi, I believe, or out Mississippi, out. yeah. And mother kind of caught his talent early on. It was like a very tough, hard woman. Um, you know, I think Hank was quoted as saying, like, you know, if, if uh, I was ever in a bar fight, I'd want my mom next to me because <laughs> she'd be standing there with a broken bottle, you know, yeah. ready to it, ward off anything. His wife didn't seem like any picnic either. No, no, they like to fight and beat each other up as well. And uh, and he, you know, he, he started drinking, I think, at like 13, 14, had alcohol issues really early. I mean, it was kind of like shockingly early drinking moonshine and, and quickly took to like having a lot of issues with it, but just had this insane talent of, and I think the thing with Hank, you know, the, those recordings are always a little musty. Um, you know, he's always touted as, as a... Um, you know, touted as, as, as a figurehead and something special, and, and you know, everybody kind of goes back to Hank. But at the same time, like, I guess I didn't dawn on me just like that nobody had really done that in yeah. that way before, where it was like he was very um, confessional. Emotive. And I think the thing that drew people to him was the fact that you know they felt like he was their their friend or neighbor or bar buddy who, you know, was telling their stories because he wasn't the best singer, maybe not the best player, but he had a knack for really writing um, songs that had a lot of emotion. The guy and, could and, channel and pain. The, yeah, and at the time, you know, it, it talks a little bit about the history. There was, you know, divorce rates were high. There was a lot of poverty. There was, you know, obviously drinking and, and all the things that, you know, country music does so well. But, um you know, people started to hear him on the radio and he just went gangbusters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he... he uh, the... Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and he sort of um, comes up with the advent of radio, essentially. And, you know, the one of the things that I didn't, I wasn't as aware of was this sort of uh, regional, um, you know, sort of uh, weekend, um, you know, jamborees i guess or, or whatever you'd call them but they were you know they were broadcast in regional markets there was you know uh, the louisiana hayride and and you know there was one out of birmingham alabama and there's one out of memphis and there's one out of texas and and the biggest one and this is really the what brings nashville it's uh you know sort of um identity is as, as the country music capital or music city usa was you know something as as weirdly, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a grand plan. It was that Nashville had the most powerful radio station and therefore the largest listenership, and therefore was identified as the place to go if you wanted to become a country musician. And that's really kind of um, you know the the happy accident that made Nashville Nashville was that you know the Grand Ole Opry was one of these regional uh, radio programs and it just happened to have the, the you know, be a geography plus um, the strongest radio tower, but it, it wound up having the largest reach of any of these and became the most listened to and, and therefore the place where people uh, migrated to uh, if they had a, a penchant for country music or, or a talent or a desire to, to be in that world. It was an interesting um, you know, one of those strange, um, you know, little hiccups in in history that that results in in a in, um, you know something being 
established um, that you just sort of take for granted that you know Nashville's Nashville, but it was, it yeah, was pretty no, interesting. And Hank was the was the biggest star in Nashville. Another person who, by the way, I believe was kicked out of the Grand Ole Opry at some point. Oh, he was, yeah, and uh, and so. Um, yeah, I thought the Nashville piece too was was extremely fascinating. I had no idea, and you know, obviously, I've just kind of always thought of it as you know, music city, capital country music. And um, to your point, like Hank really kind of brought people there. Um, he was by far the most popular. Or I wouldn't say by far. There was other very popular artists at the time, but it also kind of hit a, a time where people were going back to you know bluegrass and some of the the more traditional. Um, field type music and, and hillbilly kind of type music, but he really started a, a trend of singing and talking about real life. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was, I mean, I really thought that episode was, was, was one of the best and I enjoyed it a lot just mainly because I didn't know as much as I, I thought I knew more about him than I did. Um, but also the, uh, the amount of hits that guy had and the amount of like, his ability to just squeeze out a song, you know, basically off of a night of like fighting with his wife and drinking too much, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, he, you know, again, like he died at 29 years old. Um, I thought he was 27. Was it 29? 29. Cause I, okay, I was, yeah. I was thinking 27 club, you know, uh, the Kurt right, Cobain. Right. That's what I thought too. Yeah. Um, stuck in my head. Jimi Hendrix, Jim, Jim Morris and Janis Joplin. 27 thing, but um, no, it was actually uh, 29, which, you know, gave him two full years of of extra uh, living. But I mean, he, you know, he sadly died in the back of a car going from one gig to another. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a true, you know, you, you talk about like organ failure, um, which is actual like drinking yourself to death basically, you know, yeah. um, not funny, but just, you know, it's just a sad thing. And, and I've heard stories of, of people being like, you know, I think June Carter in particular when she was young, sitting on Hank's lap and just being so shocked at like feeling the bones, you know, like all you could feel was bones. Like the guy was not well. Mm. Yeah. He was, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't manufactured. Uh, and I believe his mom was driving him. By the way, when no, he, no, uh, it a, I do. It was a, it was a young kid. Um, uh, okay, it, it was a, uh, you know, it was somewhere in between. I think Virginia and, and Columbus, Ohio, for some reason, that rings a bell. And um, you know that was, but so he kind of ushers in the the popularity, you know, the the sort of popular moment, and then you know the recording techniques are getting more sophisticated. Studios are popping up in Nashville, and and you move on to the sort of um, you know the sort of fifties, sixties, uh, or you know late you know fifties, early sixties kind of crooner area of um, country music, and, and I, I say crooner, I don't you know that generally designates uh, or indicates a sort of male singing voice, and I don't mean that. It's the sort of almost the big band era of uh country music um you know where the you know the what's popular in country is popular in pop as well um and so you get you know sort of patsy klein uh the beginnings of johnny cash um you know and some of the uh bob wills and texas playboys and some of the bigger regional acts that that you know come from different parts of the country that are 
um, you know, you're still dealing largely with, you know, regional radio and then touring dance hall kind of thing. People playing um, in these dance halls on Saturday nights, Friday nights and Saturday nights where people, you know, paid. I actually saw a documentary last night about Coconut Grove, um, you know, the uh, the, you know, tragic fire in Boston that killed uh, 400 90 people back in in the 40s and you know that really was the you know the you know the the form of entertainment of the day was going to these you know very elaborate nightclubs and seeing people's nightclub acts whether it was tap dancers or comics or or whatever and you know they tour you know they'd have a house uh band and a house uh, group of entertainers but then you'd have touring musicians and that's where you know the the bob wills's of the world come in with their and and little Jimmy Dickens and people like that, but then that graduated. Yeah, there was almost a swing to it, and yeah, kind of you know it it was dancing music. It was concurrent with you know Glenn Miller and and things of yeah. that nature, uh, Henry Mancini and um, Nelson Riddle and things of that nature. But you know then you graduate into you know the the more sophisticated recording uh, pieces like. Patsy and, uh, you know, Elvis and Johnny Cash, who were sort of uh, introduced and, uh, you know, brought through Sun Studios at the same time. Um, it's kind of interesting to see them, uh, you know, sort of, di- you know, introduced concurrently because you don't really think of the Johnny Cash Elvis Presley connection. No, I mean you you do through photographs and things like that, just from that or in the Jerry Lee and you know that crew, but like, um, but yeah, no, it was it was kind of the, I think there was two things happening. There was that sort of, um, you know, Nashville epicenter, and then the the star it started to become like that, you know, the popularity and the stardom, and then also the shifts in American music in general, like you know the birth of sort of more rock and rolly swing and things like that that were coming out. And those guys were, were perfect stars, obviously Elvis being, you know, massive, but Johnny Cash too, you know, and it was this kind of new young, um, I guess the, the, their stars were kind of born then. Yeah. Um, also the thing that I think the doc does a great job on, and, and I'd, I'd say we haven't talked a lot about, is the female presence of this genre. I mean, there's a very strong, um, strong it, women, um, and very, singers. Yeah, and, innovative. Yeah who kind of also both business savvy and um, obviously popularity as well. Yeah, there, there's a, you know, I mean, it, it's a fairly, I mean, it, it, and if you, you know, when you watch it, you realize that, you know, women were, were you know, there was definitely a double standard in, in terms of power and, and pay and things of that nature. But in terms of popularity and, you know, and innovation and creativity, it was it was a fairly even split between men and women, which is, you know, very unusual. Yeah, and I think some of the, the latter was, was sort of based on just the times, right? And, uh, you know, just kind of age-old sexism <laughs> that's yeah. still around in all industry today. But but um, but I think, you know, the star power was impressive. And, you know, there's obviously Loretta, uh, Dolly, you know, and, and they go and later on into Emmy Lou and, and, you know, other kind of key figures in the scene um, who made a huge impact. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's, and, you know, this is, it's funny because it's actually moved back away from it now. There's still, you know, modern, in modern country, it's, it's a fair amount of, you know, 
professional songwriters feeding songs to professional musicians. Um, but that was really the birth of the sort I mean, Hank was sort of the birth of the singer songwriter, um, you know, which then carried on to, uh, you know, people like Loretta and Dolly and, um, you know, less so Johnny Cash. He wasn't really a writer of his own songs very often. Merle um, Haggard. Yeah. And, um, and I, Willie Nelson, you know, was well, a, yeah. and then it also birthed the whole, the whole, um, industry of, of very creative people ending up in Nashville writing songs for these people, trying to make it themselves, but ending up having to, you know, make money by writing songs for others. Yeah. Much, much the same as, as, you know, with Motown, Holland Dozier, Holland, or the Philadelphia Sound, you know, with Gamble and Huff, you, you, you have these songwriting teams. Um, I guess that dates back well before any of this. I mean, you've got Gilbert and Sullivan and, and the Gershwins and, and people like that, but this is, you know, this is a sort of carryover uh, in Nashville. Um, and do you want to take a quick break and, and listen to a little bit of Patsy Cline um, and, yeah, you know, hear how these things are evolving? Crazy. I'm crazy for feeling so lonely. I'm crazy, crazy for feeling so blue. I knew you'd love me as long. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking about Ken Burns' country music doc and, and uh, meandering our way through uh, a century of, of country music. And, um, you know, so basically, the, you know, the, you're talking about the major turning points. Um, you know, the 60s, uh, notorious time of upheaval in, in this country and, and, you know, was uh, in this industry as well. You know, at the beginning of the 60s, you start getting... Um, singer-songwriters, people writing their own songs, people like Loretta Lynn, who is really, uh, you know, I mean, is does that that dual role of, of being a badass, independent woman and also uh, singing about, you know, the sort of traditions of, of you know, marriage and, and motherhood. and um, But she, you know, she really, you know, rocks the world when, you know, with these sort of quote feminist anthems um which are pretty controversial at the time i mean don't come home uh, drinking with loving on your mind and uh later on the pill um yeah. two major major you know uh, landmark records in the in the world of country music in the world of music really and um you know you get people like uh you know you get in the late 60s, you get Johnny Cash sort of inv- infected by a different kind of spirit, um, you know, the spirit of change in folk music. He embraces uh, the civil rights movement and political activism and, you know, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. And, <laughs> you know, really starts uh, influencing a lot of people, chief among them uh, a young prisoner at the uh, San Quentin uh, live at San Quentin recordings uh, by the name of Merle Haggard, 
uh, of Bakersfield, California, who happened to be uh, prisoner number blah, 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 blah at the time, um, who took, uh, took his life of petty crime, saw Johnny Cash while he was sitting in prison and decided to change his life and uh, became one of the most influential recording artists of all time. Um, yeah, one of the most popular and, and talented, I think, of the genre as well. And somebody, too, who kind of like Loretta Lynn um, was was traditional and saying a lot about things that were traditional, but almost with a, a sleight of hand. You know, he, he was very, um, I mean, funny. And I think people that, if you listen to Merle straight up, you're kind of like, whoa, you know, like Fighting Side of Me or songs like that, you know. And, and then you kind of get... You know, you talk, listen to people who knew him and, and kind of talk to him and, and his beliefs and things. And he was also kind of like Johnny on the, on the side of, like, rebelling to some degree and, and, you know, taking in kind of some of the change that was going on. Well, that's a kind of, you know, the great, you know, sort of schism of, of country music is, you know, which side of Oki from Muskogee you come down on. Oki from Muskogee, exactly. a number one hit. Um, that you know, sort of condemned hippies and and protesters, and but a, you know, pretty damn funny song. And it's a, but it's a hundred percent. You know, it was a a very wry and sardonic uh, sort of answer to conservatism and to you know the sort of hippie movement. I, I don't think you you know. I think he was kind of poking fun at both sides, and and one of those rare. I mean, this, as the story goes, that he absolutely was. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean he, you know, Merle knew his, <laughs> Merle knew his way around a, a a joint. That's for damn sure. And um, you know, there he is. You know, we don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee, and we don't get our, we don't take our trips on LSD. Um, still think uh, boots are are still <laughs> uh, the the uh, manly footwear <laughs> footwear in men's fashion. <laughs> I still don't know where that line comes from, but. Um, but he, uh, you know, he was, yeah, he was sort of poking at both sides and, and successfully doing it. I mean, this is a guy who, uh, you know, is well-loved and, you know, sold a, a hell of a lot of records, but is also, you know, probably responsible for, you know, one of the Grateful Dead's favorite covers. And, and um, you know, I mean, he sort of had an appeal well beyond and also kind of you know ushered in a new style of country music that sort of classic um uh it's called the bakersfield sound it's you know it's referential to a very certain type of guitar playing but it it is that sort of telecaster high on the neck reverb telecaster kind of um yeah like dwight yoakam trebly you know took it on and, and anybody from that area but no it's it's a uh, it's very clean in a weird way but um and tight but it, it has that sort of like yeah treble it's crystalline and, you know yeah and it's uh but you know he was Electric. a very he was a very clever writer um and he you know he comes on the scene um and then you know again the the sort of seismic shifts are coming um in more rapid succession at this point you know, one of the things that I was thrilled about this documentary was its focus on Chris Christopherson, mm-hmm. who sort of yeah. Talk a little bit about that too, because I, I think he was he was a megastar, right? At the yeah, time. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to remember 
are hard to fathom at this point. But he was, I mean, he was a badass. He was just, yeah. you know, he was, you know, cool. He was also uh, Actor. Um, he was also a veteran. He was also right. yeah. a road scholar. Um, studied at Oxford. I mean, this guy was, you know, he was a brilliant human being. And he loved country music and sort of became... I mean, Dylan certainly had a, a lot of influence on the writing that was going on in country music and, and pop in general, but Chris Christopherson is sort of the landmark, um, you know, sort of Bob Dylan-esque figure when it comes to, um, you know, writing more complex, confessional, um, I guess, intellectual and poetic uh, song lyrics, um, you know, that, that really shaped... Uh, things to come in in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, I would say that he was kind of a pinnacle person and also somebody who, you know, like Johnny Cash almost having like a, a I don't know if I want to call it like a second career or second half of his career at this point. Um, and, and those guys really became tight friends. And, uh, you know, I think Chris Christopherson had a, a huge influence on a lot of the, the sort of guys who had been doing it for a while as well. Yeah, I think, you know, there. this is a point at which, you know, rock and country kind of come together a little bit. Um, you know, the birds do Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Uh, they go to Nashville. They try and play the Ryman Auditorium, a.k.a. Grand Ole Opry. Again, um, boot out of town. Um, but you have, you know, people like Graham Parsons and, and uh, Linda Ronstadt and Johnny Cash um, covering Chris Christopherson, Chris Christopherson releasing his own records. Um, you know, there is sort of a, a you know, a intertwining of, you know, what had previously been a bit of a firewall. Um, and uh, well, I think, too, it's that time that you kind of finally talk about where there's these gaps in music sometimes where there's just, there's not really a defining genre that's, that, or there isn't a... a siloing off I guess to some degree and uh and I think this was very much that time like you know you had a, a Graham Parsons type who you know by all accounts was sort of a you know like I guess a, a more of a rich kid but rich like dilettante, again, grew yeah. up in the south and loved country music and turned the Rolling Stones onto onto country you know and and uh and they were influenced by that and you know as usual England tends to love American music and make it their own to some degree but um but, like, you know, I think it was just, you know, Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash doing Nashville Skyline. You know, there was just some things that... And, and there was always uproar, and, and, you know, on both sides. I think the, the hippies who love Bob Dylan think that was probably one of his worst albums. And, and at the same time, the, the folks who, you know, wanted Johnny Cash to be more traditional and, and you know, less, um, you know, I guess, radical. Fringe, yeah. Yeah, I hated that, too. But it was... But it's, a, you know, it's produced some of the best music of the era, I think, you know? Yeah, I think it, you know, and that those, you know, two things mixing together, um, that alchemy, you know, really produced a lot of what became popular in the 70s. And it is, it, you know, I mean, we're seeing it right now in a different, um, in a different fashion um, with, you know, streaming services and um, premium cable companies and television, you know, sort of having this, you know, there, there's this sort of uh, wild frontier, this new frontier that, you know, is is not yet policed by the industry. Um, and that's kind of what you had at certain points in music. And I, I think the 
late 60s, um, early 70s being one of them, and, you know, late 70s being another where the industry isn't keeping up with what's current. And, you know, so that rather than them driving and making things uniform and looking for the next version of fill in the blank, people are people who are creative are driving what is new and what is popular and the industry is left to, to catch up. And I think that's what's happening, um, you know, with Chris Christopherson and the birds and, you know, the pill and Dolly Parton coming yeah, onto the, the scene land. and things of that nature. And, and so that all, that whole firestorm ignites the, the seventies rock, you know, country rock thing with, Pure Prairie League and the Eagles and, and Linda Ronstadt and the Laurel Canyon sound, Crosby, Stills and Nash even, it, there is this, you know, temporary marriage of the two genres that, that doesn't, that feels very seamless and country songs are hitting the top of the charts and, um, you know, rock musicians are, are playing Nashville. It, it was a very, it was an interesting time. And again, once the industry catches up, they try and segregate these two things again and they do it successfully. Um, they get their, you know, they get the control back by sort of mid late seventies, um, only to have it, uh, sort of destroyed once again by, um, the exodus that you can really talk about more, Jared, the, uh, the exodus of, of Texans back to Texas. Yeah, I mean, you had that. I mean, I think it's always kind of considered kind of, you know, as there's golden eras of, of music, and I guess there's quite a few in country music, but, um, you know, you certainly can go back to the, the early Bub Wills and, and people like that, and these guys were all influenced by that. And then you have the, the late 60s through the sort of mid 70s, which is, a, I think, a really exciting and, and great part of country. And, um, and then you had that sort of band of outlaws, or they kind of called themselves the Outlaws, which is actually a name that kind of came out later, um, of guys that had been around Nashville and just hadn't had much success but were writing songs and frustrated, to be frank. I mean, they weren't um, they weren't commercial enough or pop enough, um, you know, to, to really be promoted. And, and two of the kind of linchpins in that were Willie Nelson and, and Waylon Jennings, obviously. And, and um, you know, there was other folks around the fringes, you know, Guy Clark and, and um, you know, Towns Van Zandt, and, and we can kind of talk about how that all sort of comes full circle. But the two, I think, you know, most well-known and, and most successful, and, and, you know, Merle sort of jumped on this bandwagon eventually, too, and, and they were all friends, Chris Christopherson, obviously, but... Um, but, you know, Willie was kind of the start, and I think he just was fed up. Um, Willie Nelson notoriously does not have the best voice. He's, um, he's a generation older you know, than his than his. Yeah, he's a generation older. Peers. He's got a kind of a quirky guitar-playing style, but he's a great songwriter. Well, they, there's and, a great uh, line in the, in the thing where, uh, you know, later on when they said, uh, you know, uh, I think they were, they were talking about Willie Nelson, you know, letting him do his thing. They're like, oh, I could let him record his, his uh, you know, what he wants to record, it'll never sell. The guy sings through his nose, and then somebody yep. comes back and says, well, it's a hell of a nose to sing through. <laughs> right, yeah, no, and uh, and Willie ended up going back to his home state of Texas, and in particular Austin, and, and where there was obviously a college town and a, a larger hippie movement, and 
country movement and, and started playing these shows and they became wildly successful. Armadillo World Headquarters being kind of the, the main spot and then, you know, later on doing the Lukenbach festivals where he kind of combined rock and, and hippies and rednecks and all the... All the Weed uh, and whiskey. Weed and whiskey and uh, grew his hair long, grew his beard long and um, and it just started to be really successful and he roped in his, you know, Whalen who is one of my personal favorites and yours as well. Had also another guy like we talk about. These guys all have very long careers. I mean, Waylon was a bass player for Buddy Holly and, and yeah. like you know won a bet or lost a bet and didn't get on that plane and didn't die that day. You know, um, and had been he has an amazing voice, kind of like a Johnny Cash in the sense not <clears throat> not a prolific songwriter, but uh, a commanding you know, can completely commi- yeah a commanding presence and voice and also take other elevate other people's songs to a level that they never could. In fact, um, his best album is entirely. Or you know, arguably one of his best albums is is entirely uh, a song for song cover of someone else's album. Yeah, Billy Joe Schaefer, and and you know another guy who was kicking around and and, and doing lots of drugs, but um, <laughs> but you know I think the one you know great thing that really kind of changed everything it was Redheaded Stranger when Willie literally went off to like you know West Texas with a four piece and recorded this album that the record company was like this is like a demo right I mean this is this is not an album like we can't put this out and he's like put it out you know and, and it became a number one record well not and, only that but they um, said they put it out just to show him that it wouldn't sell yeah just to show him that it would flop exactly and 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 I think that was you know a real turning point for these guys Willie had been doing you know uh, phases and stages and, and his, his own stuff at this point but that was a both sides now. One, yeah. Number one record. And, and then Waylon, you know, I mean, there's some great lines where he's just like, Willie has him come down to play and he's like, I, they're going to like throw shit at me. I can't play in front of these people, <laughs> you know, these like hippies and stuff. And he's just like, get out there. And, and sure enough, they loved him and, and Waylon too. So it became this, this, uh, you know, sort of takeover of, I think much like the seventies films where you had the directors kind of taking, yeah. on Hollywood and gaining power back and creativity back, you had these guys that all of a sudden had number one hit records, you know, doing it their way, right? And punk and rock. Sure I mean, it, this it, was... Done this, it this way, yeah. This was, this was it, country's punk rock movement. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, another great Waylon thing is when he went back to the record label and, and re-signed a contract with them, and, you know, he, he had a lawyer who was a lawyer for a lot of these guys... You know, there's a great story of him, like, them just standing, you know, sitting there in silence because they can't agree on the terms. And, you know, Waylon's like, this is what I want. And I want, you know, complete artistic freedom. And I want this amount of money and, and, you know, everything else. And he gets up and leaves the room. And they're like, fine, we'll do it. And, like, the lawyer was like, that was amazing. Like, you know, you completely killed it. He's like, oh, I I just went to take a piss. (laughs) Yeah, it's called the $25,000 piss. Um, Yeah, it's great, you know. But um, I think, too, you know, they also were responsible for kind of shedding light on other artists, like, you know, or bringing those artists like Merle, Johnny Cash always had crossover appeal, um, Loretta, like people like that to the rock crowd as well. Yeah. And, and they also, um, the guys that did not have their success, like the Guy Clarks of the World and the, you know, Towns Van Zandt, um, also they recorded a lot of their songs and Billy Joe Schaefer and, and, you know, were able to provide a living for those guys and, and kind of add to their legend as well. Um, so it's, a, it's one of those just really cool music moments. Um, obviously I'm extremely fond of it. I think it's probably like my favorite era of country and, and sound and, and records that there's a, you know, at least like six or seven records I could 
name off that are, are actually really great albums, as good as Exile on Main Street or something to me. Um, but it's also just kind of a, a, a great indication of you know when something gets so bloated and at this time you were mentioning a lot of the pop acts doing country the rhinestone cowboys you know all of the the kind of glitz and 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 glo- blo- uh, sorry uh, i guess bloated you know industry kind of taking over and cookie cuttering this uh act and then to have you know a group of people kind of scale it back and and do it the way they want and be very very successful i mean you, you crossed over into the rock charts and, and oh yeah um, you know had a run there was a you know one of the coolest stories is you know I mean, concurrent to this outlaw country thing happening in in uh texas you know um chris hillman i believe or one of the flying burrito brothers while they're on tour see a college uh you know, a college student singing at a bar and dial up um, band leader Graham Parsons and said, you, you know, I, we found the, the woman that you were born to sing with, essentially, that being Emmylou Harris. And, um, yeah, who was a folky. From, yeah. Was she was in New York? No, it was uh, D.C. She's uh, Virginia. DC, right. And yeah. um, so, you know, that that you know, sort of musical marriage happens uh, with Graham Parsons, Emmy Lou Harris. Sadly, Graham Parsons, another early casualty. Uh, but Emmy Lou Harris goes on. And I think this is what, you know, this is where Ken Burns really, this is like the, the master stroke of the entire uh, series is episode seven, which is not accidentally the longest episode by about 45 minutes. Um, but you know, Emmylou Harris basically he he put he sort of concurrently shows these you know multiple uh, you know evolutions in country music happening across the United States. Um, you know, Texas and and Graham and and Emmylou um, meeting and country getting popular in Laurel Canyon and Los Angeles and. And by the end of it, he's tied it all together with one song, basically, which mm-hmm. is, um, you know, Towns Van Zant writes a song, Emmy Lou Harris records it, makes it popular. Uh, Willie Nelson hears the song, um, decides to record it with um, Waylon. Merle Haggard. Oh, Merle Haggard. Sorry. It was Merle, actually. Yeah. yeah. And it becomes like the biggest country music record of all time. Right. Yeah. And, and again, like I didn't actually know that, you know what I mean? Yeah. But um, I didn't know how that all kind of, I knew Towns wrote it and, and I knew that they recorded it, but I didn't realize the impact it had and, and, and kind of to your point, the full circle. And again, kind of going back to, you know, Towns, another troubled soul who, you know, a lot of, um, he's the, you know, writers, writer in country circles, but, um, <clears throat> you know, a sad guy. And, and then, you know, Emmy Lou has the voice of an angel and, and very impactful. And then, you know, you've got your two kind of like older um, legends, you know, recording your uh, a song that became a huge hit, which is, is, it's really cool. And I think that's one thing that's kind of cool in the country music world in general is it seems to be a, a pretty open, open community as far as songwriting goes and, and sharing. And, and I think that comes from the early, early traditions, you know, of, of everybody playing kind of traditional field songs and, and them being passed down. And I think it's always kind of kept that tradition of, you know, people doing other people's music. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things and, that can't be lost in this too is, you know, so there is, you know, we're, 
you know, we're very partial to the sort of outlaw, as I just said, the sort of punk rock version of, of the country story. But, you know, concurrent to that, there was a lot of great stuff being made. I mean, Dolly Parton, during the yeah, entire run of Dolly this... Yeah, for a minute. Stuck, <laughs> because... stuck to her guns, you know, did her traditional... Um, you know, uh, American values, you know, in a very subversive way. But, you know, the, the, you know, the absolute, you know, darling of the Grand Ole Opry and touring circuits. And at the same time, you're talking about one of the greatest songwriters ever. Um, and somebody who is entirely self-taught, somebody who has written countless songs for other people and just kicked ass as a business person and a, and a creative person. That my favorite story, and it's not in this documentary, is uh, it was in actually in Elvis the Searcher, I think, or I've heard her tell it before too, where she uh, wrote a song, had a modest hit with it, um, and Colonel Tom Parker, who was Elvis's, uh, you know, handler and manager, and ultimately his destroyer. But um, that's another story. But, you know, so Colonel Tom Parker sidles up to Dolly Parton and says, Elvis Presley would like to record the, a song of yours. Um, it's customary if Elvis does your song that we take half the publishing. And mm-hmm. she was 22 or something like that. And she was like, you know, in, uh, in a very more Dolly kind of manner, mm-hmm. said, fuck off. Um, and then she follows up that story with... It's all right, though. Uh, we had a pretty good hit with it when uh, Whitney Houston sang. Uh, and that song yeah. was I Will Always Love You, <laughs> um, the biggest selling single in the history of music. So, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, for somebody who is 23 years old or however old, you know, to say fuck off to Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis Presley, I mean, it took an enormous amount of fucking balls. Um, yeah, no, and, and I, I think they do a great job of just, you know, Dolly is an enigma, right? She's just a, a, a powerhouse. I mean, I literally watched the Grammys this past year with my two daughters, and there was a huge tribute to Dolly because she's that cool with every pop star that they love currently, you know, just idolizing this woman. But to do it with her style, flair, humor, um, and just business, uh, I mean, throughout her career, she told people to fuck off and yep. <laughs> made her money. And, and she's never and then, publicly you know, to been go... shown to say fuck off. I mean, she always looks, she has always maintained that public persona of the nicest person on earth. Yeah, and you genuinely, I mean, minus being in a contract negotiation with her, she um, does it with a smile, you know, and, and leaves a lipstick mark kiss on your cheek. And, you know, at the same time, um, to your point, is, is a great songwriter, had so many hits, and then even when she went more pop or, or more kind of commercial, just maintain, maintain that um, <clears throat> integrity to her, her base, too, you know, at, at the same time. Like, never, nobody's ever been like, oh, Dolly's a sellout, or Dolly no. just gave up, or, they, you know. She said, I believe she said it herself in this, that, you know, the, she didn't go looking for the pop charts, the pop charts came looking for her. Yeah, and she had the quote of, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not leaving country, I'm taking it with me. Yeah. You know? And, uh, I mean, she's a million quotes. She's, she's, she's great. She's the most quotable person <laughs> ever. Um, yeah. yeah. No, there, there should be a book of just Dolly quotes. But I, I thought that was pretty cool. And, and I think, too, you know, again, kind of going back to, like, the women of country, um, 
there's just a lot of like Tammy Wynette and, and Dolly and Loretta Lynn and, and uh, Emmy Lou and, and there's you know I think the doc does a good I mean obviously they they rely a little bit on you know the, the people that they could get to talk right you know well they give a little bit they they like any documentary um, you know you, it you tilt a little bit toward the the um, you know lionizing some of the people that you can get I mean there was probably uh, little, a section on too much time spent on Roseanne Cash, Roseanne right? Cash and Hank Jr. But then again, yeah. the, the, their stories are very interesting. So it wasn't yeah, and they're the they're the sons and daughter of the most famous country singer. You know, two of the most probably. I mean, you could arguably say you know the two most famous country singers. Um, oh. And there's a lot of pressure there. Yeah, and Hank and both of them were very successful. Um, the inter- yeah. I you know I mean on a on a personal side note, you know the the concert that I always talk about that. Paulie and I went to in, I believe it was 91, uh, at Studio 54. I saw Johnny Cash when he was absolutely at his career nadir, and uh, Marty Stewart opened. Pre-American recording. Yeah, Marty Stewart opened. and Yeah, he was basically on, like, you know, the, he wasn't even on the state fair. He was on, like, the county fair circuit. And um, people don't really remember this, and it's hard to imagine. It's hard to believe. But I saw him do a three-and-a-half-hour concert at Studio 54 that uh, was probably a third full. I mean, you could literally go buy a beer and put it on the stage, um, rest your arms on the stage. It was, you know, it was empty. And, um, but that's the concert that Roseanne Cash is talking about when she said her dad was in New York and gave her a call and said, can you, will you come play with me? And she was like, no. And at this point, she's a lot bigger than her dad is. And then she sort of had a change of heart and was like, fuck it. You know, what am I carrying all this anger for? And she went and played. So I was there. That was kind of cool. Yeah, and then toured with him and and spent a lot of time with him post that. Yeah, it's a a touching story. And then, you know, Johnny comes back with American Recordings and becomes a god to a whole new New generation. generation. I mean, the guy had like seven careers. Yeah, he really did. And, I mean, I think, like, in country in general and I think you know just like R&B and soul and, and any I guess genre I mean you have the great quote in here too that Ken Burns has about Charlie Parker listening to Hank Williams and all his you know jazz buddies being like why the fuck do you keep playing that song and he's like it's the stories man yeah you know it's it's the stories <laughs> and, and uh but you know I, I think having a figure like Johnny Cash um who just kind of rose above you was like a, you know, I don't want to compare him to David Bowie, but in that sense of like bringing just so many different things together, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was, it was, it yeah, was it was so an alchemist. Powerful. Yeah. Which was, and you know, happened to have a fantastic voice and career, but the best voice yeah. ever. I mean, I, that's, you know, I think you have a gateway drug and live at Folsom in San Quentin was my gateway drug to, to realizing that, this music's pretty damn cool, and then you kind of get, you know, obsessed and, and go deeper into yeah, your... the badassery uh, is... And the stories are great. I mean, the song, the stories oh in the songs yeah. are great, but the stories outside the songs are great. And I, I have to, you know, on a, on a much lighter, um, you know, note, I think, you know, the great a great companion piece for this is um, Tales from the Tour Bus, Mike Judge's show about uh, country music as told by the sidemen who played with these uh, icons and you know the George Jones episode 
and the Billy Joe Shaver episodes in particular, I think, are, are worthy of note um, just for, you know, because the Ken Burns doc, as, as much as it intimates, you know, some of the bad behavior that went on, um, it was a, the behavior was a hell of a lot worse than, uh, yeah, you know, the, these the guys Tales make the, the stones is, blush. Yeah, it's almost like a, you, 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 it's so ludicrous that it's, it's hard to believe. Think, of it, think <laughs> and, about um, it as, as, you know, uh, Zeppelin in the 70s with a lot more gunplay. Yeah, absolutely. NWA's first tour or something. It's, it's pretty nuts. Um, but yeah, no, so I mean, I don't know if you want to touch on any of the, the latter uh, pieces you know, of the doc or the end there, but... Yeah, I mean, there was so much, you know, the sort of massive popularity. I have to say that, um, you know, much like uh, Ken Burns, is my other favorite Ken Burns doc, Baseball, you know, there was the penultimate episode is by far the star of the show. Um, in, in the baseball doc, it was the 70s baseball era, and partially that's, you know, uh, my nostalgia yeah, kicking in, what you like. yeah. and partially I think it is, you know, one of the more interesting chapters of, of the history of, of, you know, these things. But I think, you know, you know, there are people worthy of, you know, many, many people worthy of mention. I mean, all the way to the current time when, you know, you're, you know, I went and saw Casey Musgraves and Sturgill Simpson in the past year, um, you know, that mixed in with my, you know, fixation on Titus Andronicus and, you know, uh, various other, touring bands at the moment but you know they the the 90s i you know were not my favorite i wasn't you know but the the history of you know garth brooks being the biggest selling artist and uh, solo artist in history um you know i mean there's this there was a, it was a period that where the music didn't appeal to, to me personally as much but obviously great strides were taken in the industry and uh, those can't be discounted. Yeah, you sort of had Michael Jackson esque success. Yeah, and, uh, the Judds and Trisha Yearwood and um, definitely, you know, in a weird way. I mean, like a lot of music, the late '80s and '90s, it's a sound quality issue to me sometimes too, because there are people like Dwight Yoakam who is a bit of an outlier, but not. He was he was actually very famous and an up and comer who who really does play kind of traditional Bakersfield sound and, and Merle and you know sort of eccentrics like Lyle Lovett. Mm-hmm. Um, who was also touted. I, mean, I remember Steve Walker, I love it, and Dwight being touted as you know the next big things. Yeah, and then you and then you got a whole generation of new outlaws with Steve Earle and leading the pack, kind of, and then you know which morphed into a a movement that started bands like Wilco and Sunvolt and you know All Country or whatever you call yeah, it. Yeah, Americana. Like, I think that's yeah, it's, you know something you can't really dismiss either. There's a lot of you know again much like the '70s and the Laurel Canyon sound. There's Americana. Um, you know, sort of hybrid of, of folk, country, and rock. Uh, you know, is is predominant, and and you know what a lot of people listen to. I you know I happen to love it. Um, you know, bands like the Jayhawks and and um, you know d- things of that nature. But you know, again, um, I th- I thought the first seven episodes of this were amazing. I think the last one, you know, because it was so. Um, much more recent, um, didn't resonate as much, but yeah, it was kind of the reason why I never really liked country music that much until I heard what I needed to hear, which started back in the sixties. The achy break. But I agree. Yeah. I think the, 
I think the beginning is really fascinating in the historical point of view. A lot of things that I did not know or realize or, or kind of didn't understand. Um, I personally like felt the Hank Williams episode was amazing just because of the the switch over to that confessional songwriting style, which influenced so much around it in all you know rock and John and folk and everything else. You know, even they even touch on you know Woody Guthrie and, and uh, people like that who weren't necessarily he considered country because of politics, unfortunately. But he's very much a country artist, and um, you know very much had that sound as well. And then yeah, I mean the sweet spot for me too, sort of uh, wrapped up in and what was you know if you if you're only gonna watch one episode and and you have kind of a, a lean towards that outlaw sound, um, the. Because that episode's not just about the outlaw sound. It's, it's, to your point, about kind of a lot of different things and, uh, and sort of the expansion and a uh, big part on Dolly and Emmy Lou and it's just a great episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so you want to take a quick break and come back and finish this thing? Let's do it. Lord, it's the same old tune, fiddle and guitar. Where do we take? Welcome back, brother, brother, brother pod, and uh, Wyndham and I just uh, talked about Ken Burns' country <coughs> documentary on PBS. It's uh, fantastic, highly recommend it, and uh, we both really enjoyed it. There's a lot there, but um, it's well worth the time commitment um, for anyone who likes music, likes history, and, and definitely likes country for sure. But we're going to end this uh, episode as we always do. When what are you listening to? I am listening to a mix that I put together called, um, very creatively called, New Music Fall 2019. <laughs> Windom's mix. <laughs> yeah. And um, it, it, it's the, uh, it's the uh, it's a replacement for Mega Mix from 1992. <laughs> um but I threw on the new Nick Cave, the new Angel Olsen, the new White Reaper, um, Lana Del Rey, and uh, Richard Dawson, um, and a couple of others um, that I'm not that are not springing to mind right this second. Um, but oh, I'm that's a long way around saying there's a lot of new shit coming out, and it all seemed to have come out on the same day. Um, so I cannot, um, I, that is what I'm listening to. I'm listening to a mix of a lot of, uh, recently released. The new sound. It is the new sound, Metamodern. Um, but it, it is, um, it's an interesting, uh, moment there. It just seems like nothing was coming out for a while and then boom, everything dropped, so it's Ghosting by Nick Cave, Two Hands by Big Thief, All Mirrors by Angel Olsen, Ode to Joy by Wilco, House of Sugar by Sandy Alex G, 
Sound and Fury by Sturgill, You Know What I'm Saying by Danny Brown, uh, In Morse Code, New Pornographers, Closer to Gray by The Chromatics, and You Deserve Love by White Reaper. That's my fall nice. 2019 new music mix. mix. Cool. What well, are you that, listening uh, to? I'm going to have to follow that. I've been listening to a lot of the similar stuff. Um, you know, a big fan of the new Big Thief album and, and definitely have tapped into some of those records you just mentioned, but there are a lot to get through uh, before end of the year, best albums. So looking forward to that. I actually, um, I'm going to go to watching. I was stuck on a business trip for a few days in, in a hotel room and I ended up kind of ripping through the second season of Succession on HBO, which is, uh, you know, I think probably one of their more popular series that they put out in a while. It's fun. Um, you know, we love watching shows about rich dysfunction and uh, hating on, you know, the ultra-wealthy, especially these days. But, um, you know, I, I, I give it a solid B, but I mean that in the sense that I am tend to be somewhat critical of television of like, and yeah. film and yeah, but I actually would like highly recommend it as just an enjoyable show. If you if you're not um, picking it apart or, or taking it too seriously, it's a lot of fun. They nail a lot of things. Um, they miss a lot of things too, but they don't miss so much that you want to you know veer off the road. It, it's a uh, I thought very uh, ensemble cast, kind of you know obviously based on sort of a Murdoch type um, you know media family of you know extreme wealth, and uh, it's. Pretty, you know, made me laugh out loud a couple times, and there's some good uh, twists and turns in there. So if you haven't um, tapped into it, I know you have, but um, any listeners out there, it's it's a uh, show that is definitely entertaining. I haven't I haven't found a lot of shows lately that I haven't turned off halfway through because there there's just a glut of mediocrity out there. And I'm not saying that this show is is you know the best show. It's not Fleabag season two, but it's uh it's definitely really good. And fun to watch. And can I just, then, um, my, my one addendum to that, um, that uh, recommendation is uh, Connor Roy 2020. Yeah, there you go. Nice. Um, and so uh, let's throw a song on the Never Ending playlist, which sounds like you have one right now. I do. And I'm going off topic. And I don't believe it's on there yet. Heart of Glass by Blondie. Nice. Great one. Um, I am going to go on topic, but I'm going to go with the uh, hippie country cosmic cowboy music or whatever Graham Parsons coined as his music. Because I think it's like one of the, I think it's just like one of the greatest straightforward country songs. There's a lot on there and um, that he has on the Grievous Angel and GP albums that I, I could say are some of my favorite straightforward country songs. But one that I always go back to is In My Hour of Darkness. So yeah, that one on there. and just for the record, you know who sings back up on that, correct? Uh, I think it's one Emmy Lou Harris, right? It is Emmy Lou Harris, Stevie Nicks, Linda Ronstadt, Nicolette Larson. Nice. Oh wow, I didn't know that was the. I, Boom! Like a fact I did not know. Yeah. Thanks. There you go. Like. All right, we'll talk right. soon. Thanks talk a lot. You. Bye. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother 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 podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.